God continued his assault of the gods and religious faith of Egypt by sending a catastrophic storm upon the Egyptian people. The recollection of the prophets of Israel continues in Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 35. The scriptures say, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may serve me. For this time I am going to send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For had I now put out my hand and struck you and your people with plague, you would then have been eliminated from the earth. But indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout the earth. Still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. So now, send word, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every person and animal that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. Everyone among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring his servants and his livestock into the houses. But everyone who did not pay regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Now the Lord said to Moses, Reach out with your hand toward the sky so that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, on every person and animal, and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. So Moses reached out with his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire flashing intermittently in the midst of the hail, which was very heavy, such as had not occurred in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck everything that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, from people to animals. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron, and said to them, I have sinned this time, the Lord is the righteous one and I and my people are the wicked ones. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will no longer be hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they ripened late. So Moses left the city from his meeting with Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail stopped, and rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had stopped, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The ancient Egyptians associated storms and chaos with the god Set. Richard Wilkinson has described Set as follows. Set seems originally to have been a desert deity who came to represent the forces of disturbance and confusion in the world. By the Middle Kingdom, he was assimilated into solar theology as the god who stood in the bow of the sun god's bark to repel the cosmic serpent Apophis and was already incorporated into the Heliopolitan Ennead as the son of the sky goddess Nut and the brother of Osiris, Isis, and Nephthys. In the Hyksos period, Set was identified by the foreign rulers with their own god Baal, and rose to great importance as their chief deity. Set was the Red One, the ill-tempered god who personified anger, rage, and violence, and was often regarded as evil personified. 
As the god of chaos, he opposed the harmony of ma'at, truth, and was a dark side to the fabric of the universe. As a god of the desert or red land, he opposed and threatened the vegetation upon which life itself depended. And as the inimical foe of Osiris, rightful king of Egypt, he represented rebellion and strife. The god's fearsome character is seen in Egyptian funerary literature of the New Kingdom, where he is said to lurk in the netherworld and to seize the soul of the deceased. And his malevolent character was thought to be expressed in this world too, in all kinds of problems and crimes and sickness and disease, as well as civil unrest and foreign invasion. He was associated with storms and bad weather of all types and thought to be the god of the wide, raging sea. The character of Set was not entirely inimical however, as he was also held to be cunning and of great strength, and these qualities could be put to good use. Set was originally depicted as an animal with a curved head, tall square-topped ears, and erect arrow-like tail. In times and seasons, the earth can seem like an idyllic place, well suited to life and thriving. But as we and our ancestors have experienced time and time again, chaos and destruction seem always ready to pounce, erupting unexpectedly and oftentimes with vicious ferocity. The prophets of Israel described these forces with the Hebrew phrase tohu vavohu, which is often translated into English as formless and empty. This chaos has been described in the opening verses of Genesis in the following way. This is Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. In chapter 2, or episode 2 really, we spoke of the ancient Egyptian god Knum, who was the god of water. But the Egyptian god of the Tohu Vavohu, of the chaos, was Set. Set was a trickster, and often in ancient Egyptian mythology was at war with his brothers and sisters. In the mythology of today, he would be similar to Marvel's Loki, or DC's Joker. The Egyptians often described Set as unpredictable, and depending on the period of Egyptian history in view, he could be depicted either as friend or foe. But whenever peace was interrupted with tragedy, or calm with upheaval, or pleasant weather with violent and destructive storms or floods or drought, Set was seen to be at work. When God sent this vicious storm upon the ancient Egyptians, he was demonstrating lordship over the chaos, over the untamable, uncontrollable forces of Set. The description of this plague is beyond catastrophic. The picture is that of a violent and unending thunderstorm filled with hail so heavy that everything without shelter from people to animals to crops and even trees were destroyed. There were no oak or maple or cedar forests in ancient Egypt, of course, but there were trees, the most common of which were the acacia, the tamarisk, and the sycamore fig. The sycamore fig appears to have been in particular view for the Israelite prophets, as can be seen in Psalm 78, verses 42 to 49. The psalmist says, They did not remember his power, the day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan, and turned their rivers to blood and their streams so that they could not drink. He sent swarms of flies among them that devoured them and frogs that destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. He also turned their cattle over to the hailstones and their herds to bolts of lightning. He sent his burning anger upon them, fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels. In addition to the hail, the storm was full of thunder and lightning which ignited fires throughout the land. And perhaps most miraculous of all, 
This storm completely avoided the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. And it continued until Pharaoh begged and Moses prayed for the storm to cease. And yet again, once the storm had ceased, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not let the people of Israel go. Which god of the West is akin to Set? Set was a god of independence and chaos. He did what he wanted, often without respect or care for the consequences to anyone or anything but himself. As I said earlier, in today's comic franchises, this figure's closest analogs are Marvel's Loki or DC's Joker. In the West today, Set is worshipped as the god of self. Selfish ambition, self-centeredness, self-indulgence, self-protection is at the heart of what is meant by the term sin in the Christian scriptures. Jesus, in both his example and in his teachings, combated this worship of self throughout his ministry. Perhaps his clearest call to forsake this idolatry can be found in the following recollection from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 8, verses 22 to 38. The scriptures say this, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a man who was blind to Jesus and begged him to touch him. Taking the man who was blind by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting in his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise from the dead. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on man's. And he summoned the crowd together with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it benefit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what could a person give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Oftentimes, when Western Christians speak of the life and ministry of Jesus, we speak as though God took on human flesh in Jesus primarily to demonstrate to us how precious and valuable each individual human life is. And it is certainly true that the lengths to which God has gone to redeem us from decisions we ourselves have made demonstrates God's care and concern for us. But if the Gospels are to be trusted, it does not appear that God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus primarily to affirm us. Jesus, in both his life and ministry, more commonly exposed us in our self-obsessiveness. As capable of love and compassion and self-sacrifice as humans are, we are dangerous creatures, both to creation generally and to other humans particularly, as a simple perusal of violent and other criminal statistics in any given year can demonstrate. To love each other as God has loved us requires diligence, discipline, and character formed by faith in God and in his way. It's not a coincidence that the context in Mark in which Jesus exhorted all who would be his disciples to deny themselves 
was preceded by Jesus' healing of a blind man in two stages and followed by a correct but misunderstood confession of faith by Peter. This context makes it clear that humanity's inability to rightly discern the reality of God and the wisdom of his way has to do with humanity's blindness. To say it another way, Jesus has revealed the true impairment of our senses. Let's recall the opening incident. This is Mark chapter 8 in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a man who was blind to Jesus and begged him to touch him. Taking the man who was blind by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting in his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. It is interesting that Jesus did not heal this blind man all at once, but in so doing, Jesus provided a poignant illustration of the road we as humans must take back to God if we are to fulfill God's intention to make a being in his own image. When Jesus first touched this man's blind eyes, he restored his vision, but not his capacity to comprehend. The man could see, but he could not understand what he was seeing. In describing the experiences of the initial patients who were healed from lifelong blindness by the first cataract surgeries, Annie Dillard, in her book Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, can help us to understand what may have been happening in this scene. Dillard explains, For the newly sighted, vision is pure sensation unencumbered by meaning. The girl went through the experience that we all go through and forget the moment we are born. She saw, but it did not mean anything but a lot of different kinds of brightness. Again, I asked the patient what he could see. He answered that he saw an extensive field of light in which everything appeared dull, confused, and in motion. He could not distinguish objects. Another patient saw nothing but a confusion of forms and colors. This is analogous to what it's like when we first begin to follow Jesus. We begin to see more clearly. We begin to awaken, but what we see is confusing. Even though our sight has been restored, we cannot comprehend what we have been enabled to perceive. Peter became an illustration of this reality when he confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. The Gospel according to Matthew has recalled that Peter also called Jesus the Son of the Living God. Both of these confessions reveal that Peter understood Jesus to be the prophesied king in the line of David who would fulfill the promise of God to restore the kingdom to Israel, subjecting the nations of the world under their rule. Matthew reminds us too that Jesus confirmed that Peter was correct and that this had been revealed to him by God. However, as correct as Peter may have been, he was no different than the blind man whose initial healing allowed him to see without comprehension. That's a lot better sight than being blind, and Peter's confession was a lot more insightful than earlier in his walk with Jesus, yet both remained inadequate, which the text reveals through Peter's rebuke of Jesus. This is Mark chapter 8, now in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise from the dead. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on man's. What Jesus' correction of Peter reveals is that Peter knew the right words, but he did not understand what they meant. The Christ, Messiah, for the first century Judaism, was a victorious figure the anointed heir of King David who would vanquish the enemies of Israel and reestablish David's throne in Jerusalem. The Christ, or Messiah, was a conqueror, a king, a ruler, 
the one who would subjugate the nations under the governance of Israel. Peter believed this is who Jesus was, and he was right. Jesus was the Christ, the Hebrew as Messiah, prophesied in the Hebrew Bible. And still, God did not mean what Israel meant when they spoke the name Christ or Messiah. Peter rightly named Jesus, but he saw him as a tree walking around. And so Peter rebuked Jesus. Can you imagine? For Peter, the idea of death did not fit with the concept of Christ or Messiah. It seems that Peter was accusing Jesus of contradicting himself. What he didn't realize was that Jesus was going to demonstrate what the title Christ, the anointed one of God, really meant. Peter resisted the redefinition of his terms, and Jesus associated that resistance with the work of Satan. Western Christians often make the mistake Peter made with the word Christ or Messiah when we use the word love. Love is a word that can mean several different things in English depending on the context in which it is used. For many Western Christians, the love commanded of us by Jesus has come to represent parental affection, unconditional acceptance or affirmation, and things like that. As Peter read his own cultural understanding of Messiah into his understanding of Jesus, so we often read our cultural understandings of love into our understanding of God. For instance, what do you hear when you hear read 1 John 4, 7-11? Beloved, let's love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this the love of God was revealed in us, that God has sent his only Son into the world, so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When the word love is used in these verses, followers of Jesus are meant to hear something like Paul's description in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 8a. This is 1 Corinthians. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It is not provoked. It does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. This is the love of God that has been demonstrated in Jesus. The concept of love as parental affection is not to be found in these descriptions. And the idea that love requires unconditional acceptance or affirmation also is foreign both to the example of Jesus and to the summary definitions of love that we find in places like 1 Corinthians 13. Jesus certainly was willing to interact with and minister to folks who were living in sin. But Jesus did not accept and affirm all who came to him. For instance, a wealthy landowner came to Jesus and Jesus told him that in order to receive eternal life, in his case, he had to sell all he had, give it to the poor, and then follow Jesus. The man went away sad, not because Jesus rejected him, but because Jesus refused to embrace him as he was. We know enough to say that God is love, and that we should love each other as God has loved us. We know the words. But like Peter, and like the man only partially enabled to see, we do not understand what these true confessions mean. Jesus, Jesus wasn't just going to die, which Peter found contradictory to his claim to be the Christ, but Jesus was going to carry a cross. Crucifixion was reserved for those especially dastardly enemies of the state who had been caught, convicted, and sentenced to death. According to Jesus, 
his disciples must be willing to embrace such condemnations. To follow him, we must follow Jesus to the gas chamber, to the electric chair, to the hangman's noose, to the cross. To refuse this, Jesus intonates, is to be ashamed of Jesus, and Jesus will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. Why would Jesus think anyone ashamed of him? Because the claim that love is self-sacrifice, or that death is a victory, or that the transformation of all things and the writings of all wrongs will occur when followers of Jesus stop fighting for justice and start embracing the injustices done to them, is foolishness. Peter trusted Jesus to bring his own dream of Israel into reality. When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, this was how he had understood it. Jesus was going to make Israel great and powerful and prosperous. We do this too when we speak of God. When we say God is love, we are often suggesting that God loves us as we wish to be loved. In this way, many followers of Jesus have used the right words to confess the lies of Satan. This is what happened to Peter, and it's why Jesus rebuked his words as those of the devil. As Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5, the love of God does not seek its own benefit. Other translations have said love is not self-seeking. Paul has written in the epistles to the Romans in chapter 5 verse 8 of that epistle, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for us. He did not do this because humans are so valuable. Jesus died for us because God is love, and love is not self-seeking. And we saw in 1 John, because God loved us in this way, we must love others in similar ways. This doesn't mean we affirm sinfulness. It really has nothing to do whatsoever with what another may or may not be doing. We love as Christ loved because we are following Jesus. And like the love embodied by Jesus, we may also have to reveal that a person is carrying something that must be left behind in order to follow him. This is what Jesus meant by denying ourselves. We must love as Jesus loved, which means both speaking the truth and treating others with patience and kindness. Love is to interact with others without jealousy, or bragging, or arrogance, or disgraceful behavior, or selfishness, without keeping records of wrongs or celebrating sinful behaviors. To love instead is to rejoice in what the scriptures reveal is true, to keep confidential what is spoken in confidence, to believe in what God has taught us, to hope in what God has promised us, and to remain faithful no matter the circumstance. To love in this way, we must deny ourselves daily, as Jesus has said. But Jesus is not the God worshipped by the West. Chief of the pantheon of gods of the West is the God of self. When we, we say things like, I gotta do me, or be true to yourself, or respect my truth, or even this is who I am, we fall down and worship this God of the West. As God sent a catastrophic storm upon the ancient Egyptians to expose the impotence of the God set, so God is exposing the viciousness of the God of self in our day. Long ago, God turned Western cultures over to selfishness, and today, in various ways and forms, the West is reaping what it has sown. But the real battle, the real storm in which God will demonstrate his power over the Western God of self, looms on the horizon. Along with the boils that we spoke about in chapter 7, God is sending a storm upon the West that will separate husbands from wives, parents from children, and neighbor from neighbor. Jesus' prophecy preserved for us in Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 56, will be seen again in our day. Jesus said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. 
but I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you think that I came to provide peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, whenever you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And whenever you feel a south wind blowing, you say it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but how is it that you do not know how to analyze this present time? The divisions in Western cultures are already revealing themselves, but this is only a prelude, a beginning. The Lord is releasing us to the God of self that we may see its true face and taste its true nature. To this point, God has in his grace restrained this God, leaving to its worshipers a shadow of the love of God in their hearts. In the days to come, this grace will be removed, and those who have worshipped this God will be placed in its thrall. Only those who deny themselves daily, take up their cross, and follow Jesus will be preserved. May the eyes of those who repent be opened, and their deceptions be excised. Followers of Jesus, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Those who look away will be lost in darkness. But there is hope, as in the days of the plagues of Egypt, when the plague of hail destroyed the flax and the barley while the wheat and the spelt were spared, so the Lord will leave a remnant. Those who are children now will be spared slavery to this false god, and the Lord will call them to himself when his judgment on the false gods of the West has been fulfilled.